And I'm going to talk to you about some of the things in this bill and why I am so angry. They spent $1.4 trillion of our tax money that we're out breaking our backs seven days a week to make. I blame us. I blame us. Welcome, everyone, to the Cassandra Properties Podcast. We are here on Christmas Eve, the end of 2020, a difficult year for just about everybody, a year that I'm sure we're all going to be excited to put in the rearview mirror, but a lot's happening. Uh, I'm going to be ripping solo today. I wanted to reach out directly to the audience and speak on two topics today. Of course, on everybody's mind is the stimulus that was just passed and all the good and the bad that goes along with it. And I thought it would be important for us to take a a look at some market stats and uh, in particular a survey that was distributed back in June. So before the second wave, I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at some of those results And of course, we'll talk about some opportunities we see as we head into 2021. So I wanted to share a story today about a colleague who shall remain unnamed. This colleague had worked on a a deal, a complicated real estate deal for the better part of three years. Now, in many of these transactions, we operate in LLCs for a host of different reasons. And those LLCs have operating agreements that essentially set the rules of how the company is going to operate, what everyone's responsibilities are, uh, basically is the, the roadmap of how the company should operate to ensure everybody is, is rowing in the same direction and you know trying to get to uh, whatever the mission of that particular company is. So this colleague... Uh, had put together their operating agreement, as we often do in the beginning stages of the deal. And what typically happens is not enough focus is given to those operating agreements. Usually you're, you're scrambling to pull them together, uh, and simultaneously you're focusing on the guts of the deal, if you will, pulling together all the pre-dev stuff to make sure that the deal launches properly. And uh, believe it or not, more times than not, the focus shifts off the operating agreement, which is really the most important document uh, as far as I'm concerned. And it shifts over to the pre-development stuff. That's just what happens. You know, we we, we all have time constraints and um, that's just the way it seems to go. So this colleague is working on this deal and as they're getting close to concluding the deal, the member in this LLC was removed from the company. Now, they weren't removed from the company for any egregious act. It was a fairly, um, you know, benign thing when you think about the scope of, of all the things that were happening there. But there were clear rules that were outlined in the operating agreement. And... 
as the deal got close to wrapping up, certain partners hung their hat on some of the rules in that operating agreement, and this member was removed. That deal then went on to close, and that member's share was $1.4 million. Now, for most of us, $1.4 million is life-changing money, especially in one deal. But for anybody, $1.4 million is quite a pinch. Legal action ensued, of course, and uh, an awful lot of heartache ensued at the conclusion of the transaction. The member who was removed <clears throat> went after their attorney very aggressively. And I had, after the, the dust had settled, I had an opportunity to talk to this colleague. I, I was not a member in the transaction. I, I was outside of the transaction completely, thank God. Um, and, you know, they were talking to me about the experience and asked my opinion. And at the end of the day, as harsh as it sounds, you've got to read your documents, right? You have to know what you're signing because in the business world, if you don't know what you're signing and you don't know what you're signing on for, it's on you. That's, that's the way it is. Now, I'm sharing this story for a reason. We had a stimulus that's been talked about now for months, the second round of stimulus. While we're all uh, suffering in, in different ways, we're suffering financially, we're suffering from a health perspective, we're suffering emotionally, we're all experiencing our share of pain as we navigate this pandemic, unbelievable loss of life. Uh, really, it's tough to quantify what we've been living through. Um, you know, you get caught up in the moment, but if you, if you step back from it far enough, it's, it's really remarkable what we're living through today. Now, the reason the story is relevant, and like I said in the beginning, there's good and bad to the stimulus, and I'm going to get into some of the details and take this all with a grain of salt, guys. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a real estate broker. I'm an entrepreneur, and, you know, I, I like to cover my bases. I feel I'm fairly well-read, um, but I'm in no way a, a, a tax expert. Uh, nor am I an attorney. You know, I'm a guy here who's trying to connect dots and give people a platform to communicate and to share ideas and to help people. But we ended up with a 5,500-page document. The final document was dropped off on the desks. And what it shook out to was you would have had to read 970 pages an hour, or 16 pages a minute to get through that document. Now, that doesn't leave any time to go back and press about certain details, to do research, to brush your damn teeth, or anything in between. But our elected officials, and I don't blame them, I blame us. I blame us. They spent 
trillion dollars of our tax money that we're out breaking our backs seven days a week to make. And I'm going to talk to you about some of the things in this bill and why I am so angry today. Now, this is in no way an attack on the Democrats. This is in no way an attack on the Republicans. Again, this is on us, folks. We have the power of the vote. And until we change the way things are done, maybe it's time for a third party to be introduced into the system. I don't know. I'll leave that for the brighter folks out there to solve for. But something's got to change. And I don't want to hear, well, that's just the way things get done in Washington. I don't want to hear, oh, you're just not an insider. You don't understand how these things work. I've had my share of experiences. I do have some knowledge. No way am I an elected official. Very difficult job. And again, I don't envy their position. And they're left to face the music. If you vote no, how could you vote no when people are suffering? If you vote yes, how could you vote yes on something that had some really irresponsible components to it as far as I'm concerned? But this bill has got more damn pork in it than Fayico's over in Brooklyn. I'm a fan of the arts. I'm a big fan of the arts. In no way is this a referendum against the arts. It just seems awfully misplaced when the Kennedy Center is getting $26 million. When the Smithsonian got $1 billion. National Art and Humanities, $167 million. Egypt, $1.3 billion. Sudan, $750 million. The Ukraine, $453 million. Israel, $500 million. Nepal, $130 million of our taxpayer money. Pakistan got $10 million for gender study programs. There was $130 million allocated for invasive species assessment and mitigation. Now, folks, all of these programs, all of these countries, everybody needs help right now. Believe me, I get that. You know, over the years, when you're in business for yourself, you end up having a lot of people that depend on you. It's a lot of pressure to try and keep things moving, good or bad. You know, we've talked about this on the show before. We've been through some really tough times. 9-11, the crash of 08, Superstorm Sandy, and here we are again. Again, this is not an attack on the arts. It's not an attack on any other countries. It's not an attack on anything. It's just reality. So much of this bill felt misplaced. Are we at such a level of dysfunction where we couldn't separate these things into different tranches? Can't we get to a place where 
we're voting on a bill and that bill is centralized and focused on one issue? Do we have to layer all of these different components into these bills because that's the way it's done? Like I said, it's not all bad. The aid comes at a time that people desperately need it. And there is a lot of good things in this bill. Some of the other things we can account for here, $166 billion in direct payments. Individuals making up to $75,000 a year will receive a payment of $600. Now, it's not quite the $1 billion the Smithsonian got but it's $600. $600. Couples making up to $150,000 will receive $1,200 and an additional $600 per child. The deal also includes stimulus checks uh, becoming more accessible for immigrant families, which I think is important, very important. $120 billion in extended unemployment help. There'll be an extra 300 a week for 11 weeks until March 14th. The legislation also extends unemployment benefits to self-employed individuals, which is a very, very big deal for my industry, where we were also forced into a lockdown and many, many, many of us did not qualify because the agents are self-employed. So as a company, um, we did qualify for a small amount, but for the most part, we were left out of the mix. And it was very difficult. We made a decision here at the beginning of this thing. Everybody was going to stay on. Everybody was going to get a check. Everybody was going to get paid no matter what. And if it meant the, the ship was going to sink, I was going to sink with it. But I couldn't in good conscience cut people off when they absolutely needed it most. So I'm really happy to, to, to hear that the self-employed were included in this round. And um, a few other things I wanted to touch on. $325 billion for small businesses. There we go. That includes $284 billion in loans through the PPP program, which will be extended through March 31st, 2021. Folks, Get out there, get to your banks. We know what happened last time. Came in hot and heavy. Banks got inundated and overwhelmed. Many of them did a remarkable job. Kudos to them. But get your applications in early. Please make sure you're in touch with your banks. There's $20 billion in the EIDL or EIDL. I'm not quite sure how people are pronouncing it. It's the EIDL grant program. Small businesses and not-for-profits in low-income communities are able to receive $10,000 grants. Those that previously received the EDL advance are also eligible to receive the full $10,000 if their award was less during the first round of grants. There's $15 billion in SBA grants for shuttered venues. Grants of up to $10 million to live venues independent movie theaters, and cultural centers. These grants can be used to cover expenses such as payroll, rent, utilities, and PPE. A set-aside of $2 billion 
is also reserved for entities with fewer than 50 people. We've got $45 billion in transportation aid, including $15 billion for the airlines who are just dying a death of a thousand cuts. $14 billion for mass transit. $7 billion to expand broadband access, students, families, unemployed workers, including $300 million for rural broadband, $250 million for telehealth. I think all of that's important in this digital world. If you don't have access to broadband, it really is a strategic deficit that I don't see how you can overcome in this world. So I think that was important and well, well placed and well measured. We've got 69 billion for vaccines, testing and tracing. Either way, however you feel about it, the test and trace program has put a lot of good people to work and it's kept a lot of people safe. So kudos for that. 20 billion for vaccines, 9 billion for distribution, 22 billion to help states with the test trace and COVID mitigation programs. 82 billion for schools and childcare. Something that's been like it, it felt like an impossible task to 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 navigate childcare with, with the school closures and the, the work closures and they're in school and they're out of school, they're going, they're not going. You know, not everyone has grandma around to watch the kids. So I think that was important. Thirteen billion in food stamps, of course, important. $25 billion in rental aid and eviction ban. Two sides to that coin. This is certainly no time to be evicting people for non-payment. As far as I'm concerned, that goes without saying. But that has to come with relief for the landlords. You cannot cut the spigot off for landlords. Allow the tenants to not pay rent. Empower the tenants to not pay rent. Yet, the insurance bill still comes. Tax bill still comes. The mortgage payment still comes. Now, the jury is still out on how that's going to shake out, but the real estate industry overall is in need of some serious help here. $1.3 billion in forgiveness of federal loans to historically black colleges and universities and Pell Grants to incarcerated students to help simplify financial aid forms. Now, like I said, I can go on and on here. There's pages and pages and pages of notes. Check with your accountants. Check with your attorneys. Make sure that you get in early and often to get yourself in line for recovery. This has been very difficult. It's been very trying. But it does seem like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. At least a glimmer of a light. And for the first time since March, I can tell you, <clears throat> it doesn't feel like a damn freight train. With that, let's move over to some market stats. Let's talk about what's happening out there. In a recent episode... I talked about some recent stats, so I thought for this episode, it would be interesting to uh, visit excerpts from a 2020 market survey 
that was distributed by the National Association of Realtors. Now, contextually, it's important you understand this was administered in the end of June. Okay? A lot's happened <laughs> since the end of June. But I thought it would be important <clears throat> to take a look at what this, the responses were then. And hopefully NAR will update this and do a new study. Because I would love to track the delta between the responses that, that came back in June versus what people would be saying today. The survey, just to give you some context, was delivered to a random sample of 95,238 National Association of Realtor members. There was a response rate, I think it's pretty depressing, of 2.04%. Nevertheless, it's a good sample size. The survey was given into three different geographical areas to make sure that they covered all of the different markets and sub-markets. Small town and rural accounted for 25% of the responses. Urban and central city accounted for 29% of the responses. And suburb, subdivision accounted for 46% of the responses. So here's some stats and some talk, talking points. Hopefully it'll inform some decisions for you and help provide a little bit of insight and clarity so we can make better decisions as we head here into 2021. 45% of the members reported that their market is slowly entering recovery. So we're talking about end of June, early July. Nearly half of the markets had indicated they were slowly entering into a recovery. 28% stated that their market is booming. Now, these are clearly those tertiary residential markets. We've seen as people have made a shift out of center city, be secondary markets, Staten Island being one of them, on the residential side is experiencing some growth, some real healthy stats. 19% reported their market is back to normal, which seems remarkable to me, but I guess in some of these smaller towns where the virus was not as rampant as it was in, in cities like where we are here in New York, I guess that that, that makes some sense considering 25% of the surveys were targeted to small town and rural areas. 9% reported that their market is not in a recovery phase at all. Part of the survey talked about the demand of technologies. We've talked about this a lot on the show. Constant disruption. Digital toolbox seems to grow and change daily. The majority of respondents believe the demand for technologies will largely increase. I agree. Technologies like Zoom and other video communications are some of those tools and technologies that will continue to increase. I think that's the very, very tippy-tippy tip of the iceberg. There are so many other slick platforms already out there um, that are starting to take the place of or complement technologies like Zoom. In the real estate industry specifically, 
this, this may be the most shocking thing on the whole survey. 19% of the respondents believe virtual tours are going to stop. So for you 19% out there, listen to Uncle James. <laughs> That's not going to happen, folks. Technology has disrupted this industry. It's here to stay. Virtual tours is just the tip of it. And we're going to continue to innovate and adapt as we move forward. A portion of the survey focused on preparedness for future outbreaks. I wanted to talk about this because clearly we're in the throes of our second wave here. 39% of the members reported being somewhat prepared for a second wave, which begs the question, what the hell were the other 61% thinking? It was pretty clear that this was going to come back. If you studied pandemics in the past, it was pretty clear that these things come in waves. I mean, I think just about every expert talked about there being a second wave. If you looked at the infection rates, considering how contagious this thing is, it had to come back. It had to come, come you know, tearing through our communities again. The good news is that pandemics end. They're finite. There will be an end to this, folks. Vaccines are being deployed. Herd immunity is building. There will be an end. And I believe when we get to the end, hold on to your hats because it's going to be quite an energetic market across almost all market segments. I believe that there's a spirit in all of us that's just dying to get back to normal. We're dying to go enjoy a, a few beers and, and watch your, your favorite band, go to a concert, go to a ball game, go sit in a movie theater for Christmas sakes. I feel that when the, the, the fog lifts a little bit, we're going to be out there ready to go. So I do think when this subsides, it's going to be an interesting run. Nineteen percent of the members are expecting to be prepared. I'm not even sure what that means. Thirty percent were confident they were prepared for a second outbreak. And twenty seven percent felt they shifted their business practices already to be prepared. Now, for us, that certainly translates to continuing to double down, triple down, quadruple down on digital assets. Getting ourselves to a place where we can work remotely, where we can highlight our properties, we can service our clients through our consulting division, our commercial lending division, our residential division, our commercial brokerage division, whatever it is. We spent a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of energy getting ourselves to a place where we could operate remotely. And I, I hope everyone out there is doing the same. So residential real estate was another area of the study. 92% of members reported their buyers had returned to the market already. Again, this is the end of June, early July. 92%. 
18% recorded their buyers never left. Again, that, that does sync up to that 25% of the small town and the rural. 8% suggested no buyers returned to the market, which is interesting and I think would certainly be centered around some of our cities. And of course, the small towns reported stronger returns of buyers than the big cities. That makes perfect sense. Buyers timeline I want to touch on quickly. 54% reported that their buyers' timelines have remained the same, which is interesting. 27% cited more urgency to buy a home. I would think that those were centralized around relocations. And 18% reported less urgency, more measured approach. Talk about some technologies. Virtual tours was studied. 26% of the members reported working with buyers that put an offer in through a virtual tour. Now, this was super exciting for us because during the pandemic, we sold our first property. It was a, what was it, PD? A three-family, a four-family? Four-family? Four-family, five-family. I don't know, folks. It was a multi-family. We sold our first property. It was over a million dollars remotely. Buyer never set foot in the house. The virtual tours, we use the Matterport tours, fully immersive. We even send out goggles for our clients where you can put these goggles on with your phone and it's literally like you're in the house. You look up, you're walking around, you focus on these little circles, you jump to the next part of the house or the next part of the space or the building or whatever it is you're promoting. Super, super, super slick technology. Very excited that we were able to get that first one under our belt. We expect many, many more to come. We're actually contemplating, uh, you'll see in, in listings many times, you know, offers must be accompanied by a prequal. We're considering that you cannot get in for a physical showing until you've gone through a full Matterport tour. I'd love to hear from the audience some feedback and your thoughts on that. If you think that that's going too far, do you think it's, a, it's something you would like as a seller, you would like as a buyer? I know for us, it saves time. It saves our clients' time. It's a hassle when you have to bring people through an asset, be it residential or commercial. So we're toying with making it a requirement. Very easy with technology to track the links to see if somebody actually logged on and went through the tour. This way, when they do get to the house, that's a reshow. That's a second showing, folks. That's how good the technologies are now. 24% reported having buyers who shifted the location of where they intended to buy a home during COVID-19. Now, that's very interesting. And I wanted to talk a little bit about a city where the metro and city ranked fourth among the northeast cities in all commerce. The population was 1.85 million. It was over 3 million, if you include this city in the metro area. It was the place to be. It was a manufacturing hub. The city was Detroit. At its peak, over 3 million in the Detroit metro area. 
over 1.85 million in Center City. Today, there's 680,000 people living in Detroit. More than 50% of all total residential lots are abandoned. 70,000 abandoned buildings. 90,000 vacant lots. 31,000 empty houses. Now I'm bringing this up. Because I think we've got to be acutely aware of how we handle this recovery in New York City and many other major cities. I think we have to be acutely aware and and come to grips with the fact that folks are opting to relocate. The technologies have allowed us to work remotely. Companies are now, it was frowned upon just, just, very short past. It was frowned upon if you weren't at work every day. It was frowned upon to work remotely. Now, not only has it been embraced, companies are skinnying up. They're downsizing their offices. They're downsizing their physical locations. They don't want to pay the rents anymore. They don't want to deal with all of the things that come along with having people together in one physical space. That's leading to people relocating to some of the smaller cities, which are booming now. Now I'll point you to an article I wrote, or a blog I wrote a couple of years ago about the decentralization of real estate in New York City and our many other cities in the, in, in the country. Technology has disrupted real estate, it's disrupted retail, it's disrupted everything, every industry, healthcare, all of it. If there's an option for people to take a couple of bucks less, work remotely, to relocate to a city that's growing, it's got a vibrant arts community, vibrant culture, and to live for a fraction of what some of the other cities cost here in the country. People are doing it. Retailers, go drive up and down Fifth Avenue. This had to happen. This isn't a surprise, folks. For a period of time, retailers felt we had to be in Times Square. We had to be on Fifth Avenue. We needed that lost leader flagship store that never made profit. Because we wanted to expose our brand to the masses that came from all over the world. I think last year, 61, 62 million people visited New York City. Think about reallocating that money and reaching those people in a very intimate way on what? Their phones. People are living off their phones. We're tied to our phones. A company said, you know what? I could go ahead and send very targeted ads to the exact demographic that I want. 
at the exact time that I want, with the exact messaging that I want, or continue to operate in these flagships and try and reach people that way. Folks, this was a no-brainer, and it's going to continue. <clears throat> New York City is the greatest city in the world. We've got to be careful. We've got to watch the legislative threats. All well intended. But we've got to be careful and make sure that we rebound in a very pragmatic way. Because it's happened before and it can happen again. Some home feature components that were studied. 65% of buyers did not change their search criteria for a home during COVID. thought that was interesting. 13% reported that home buyers changed their home type from multifamily to single family. I guess that makes sense. People wanted a little bit more elbow room. People are afraid of being in close contact. Although I could see the other side of the argument where folks are looking for a second income, right? People want to be able to pay those mortgages and, and having a second, third, fourth unit goes a long way to that end. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about commercial real estate. Now, I've talked about this a lot, so I'll keep this brief. The study talked about landlords and property managers and their ability to get tenants to pay rent and to stay solvent. 43% cited it was difficult. 74% of landlords reported leases have been terminated or tenants needed to delay their rent payments into the unforeseen future. We all know retail's gone through a tough run. I believe there are ways to reinvent the assets. We're doing it right now for several of our clients with a lot of success. We signed four new commercial leases last month. Really excited about the work this team is doing here. We have to continue to reinvent ourselves, folks. Got to look at things a little bit different. Got to look at things a lot different. 44% of respondents expect the demand for industrial properties to increase. You've heard us talk about this for since we started this thing back in March. M properties, manufacturing properties, that's the zoning, for those who are not familiar here in New York, was a market we talked about day one is where you want it to be. And why do you want to be there? As technology continues to disrupt, micro-logistics centers are being born everywhere. We went through supply chain issues, I think we all experienced during COVID. So manufacturers are now focusing on getting their products into center city and into some of those areas where previously it was buy that big piece of land out in the, in the country somewhere, out in the hills, and then we'll ship it all in. That's changing, folks. The big demand for micro-logistics centers. 
brick and mortar occupancy for commercial dropped by 62.5 million square feet. However, there was a 113 million square foot increase in manufacturing properties. Again, as e-commerce continues to explode, this trend is here for the foreseeable future, folks. You have not missed the boat. There's an awful, awful lot of fat left in these deals. That's one of the places we're strongly recommending and continuing to recommend our clients shift some of their assets to. Again, I've got pages and pages of stats. It's Christmas Eve. I just wanted to give a, a roll-up for everybody. Touch on again the good, the bad, and the ugly in a, in a light way for the stimulus. And to touch on what I thought was really interesting uh, to take a snapshot from back in June, July from the National Association of Realtors. So thank you to them for a, a really insightful study. I hope everybody gets some time with the family over the next few weeks. We've got some long weekends, things timed out really nicely. This go around with the holidays falling on Thursday and Friday and rolling through into the weekends. Hope everyone out there is enjoying the podcast, even a fraction as much as we're enjoying and putting it together for you. We really do love this part of the business. It's just kind of taken off and, and it's something that uh, I've come to really enjoy. I hope you're enjoying it as well. Kiss those family members. Kiss those loved ones. And everybody, please stay safe.